Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hello, today Scott and I are honored to have Mr. Dan McGregor as our guest on this episode. Dan is Professor of Art and Design at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, where he teaches a variety of classes that range from introduction to art, basic illustration, figure drawing, and even art history. Dan also maintains a keen interest in history, particularly the historical context surrounding America's involvement in war up to and including World War II. He is a Christian, an avid reader, and a deep thinker. Dan, welcome to our podcast. Well, that's a very kind Did you write that introduction, Dan? I did not write that <laughs> introduction. That makes me sound quite more qualified than uh, what, what I actually am bringing to the I table I knew here. you would be. This is, let's be clear here. The reason I'm here is because I mouthed off at Cole's house one time and said, hey, I don't think, can I spill the beans here? Hey, I don't think we should have, It's you can justify as a Christian, uh, fighting in the American Revolution if we were in a time machine. Okay. Okay. Dan, um, you may already know this, but we have some guiding principles for our discussions. Can I say them? Do I you know, I know these? Them. Oh, please. I think I know them. I may need a little prompting. All right. Number one, sacred cows make great barbecue. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yes. We'll Meaning s- that uh, you guys scoff at uh, sort of conventional wisdom that has to, you know, govern the conversation, y'all are willing to torpedo it and re-examine things from a fresh perspective, questioning even the foundations of that which is considered uh, sort of communally accepted. That is the a word lot tor- smarter way to put it than we put it. Torpedo is perfect. That's perfect. Dang the torpedoes. Keep going. Uh, okay, number two. Bros before... Oh, nuts. <laughs> what is it? Uh, you're yeah. You guys are, are are friends and brothers before you are ideological opponents. Yeah, that's bros before politicos. Blows bro, bros before politicos. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so, but there's a that's number three. So there's a number two. Let your flag fly proudly. Wow, he is able don't, to pronounce it. Don't uh, yeah. Don't just sort of uh, knuckle under and say ah, I'm okay. You're okay. You know. Stay, say what you mean and don't be afraid of the consequences. Very good, Dan. Thank you. So, um, Dan, the reason you're here, Scott and I have been talking for a lot in the previous episodes about what participation in state power a Christian should have, if any. We've talked about some early European roots of church-state mingling, some positions on wealth redistribution, and even voting. Today we wanted to talk about war, and we invited you to join us because you and I have often begun short, truncated talks about the American Revolution and what we would have done had we been British colonists in the new land back in the 18th century. You might remember having mouthed off at my house about it whenever you were there for various reasons. But we've never actually been able to finish the discussion. So, Scott and I thought this podcast episode would be a great way for us all three to flesh out the subject in more detail. Plus, 
plus the fact that Cole is kind of a fulcrum between you and me in terms of this conversation. I have conversations with Cole about what Dan believes, but I don't actually get to hear what Dan believes. Dan also has conversations about what you and I talk about. Right. Right. I'm a mysterious, I'm sure he's shadowy a, figure. Right. I'm not sure he's a an accurate translator of your point of view, so I want to hear your point We're of view. We're not a direct conduit. <laughs> well, Dan, let's get right into it. What are your thoughts about the Christian's role, either individually or the church, during the American Revolution? Uh, the long and short of it is, I don't think the individual or the church should have participated in the American Revolution. All right. And I say this, I say this as an Eagle Scout from East Texas who has grown up in a Republican family. So this is a big, big deal for me to say this. Now, when you say they shouldn't have participated in the revolution, do you mean in terms of the violence of the revolution or that it shouldn't have participated at all? I'm going to argue kind of in our session here for violence. Okay. Uh, armed, kind of the broad idea that Christians should not participate in armed revolution against their government in this scenario. So if the so if the American Revolution had been merely an expression of civil disobedience, could you have could you have um, supported it? I would say I am broadly open to Christians participating in civil disobedience within certain parameters that I'd be happy to enumerate. As okay. we get deeper into the conversation. Awesome. All right. So, Cole has invited me to kind of lay out my argument. And instead of starting with the revolution, I'm going to start with a couple of paintings. I teach art history classes. I teach an American art history class. And uh, so, that's kind of like, I usually start with visual props when I'm thinking about issues, at least a lot of times I do. And there's an artist named John McNaughton who has created these kind of bizarre i'm fascinated by them these bizarre paintings that mix christian theology and american history and politics in often a disturbing way so there's one called one nation under god that depicts jesus uh basically holding the constitution in washington dc he's on these steps he's surrounded by the ghosts of all these founding fathers and dead soldiers from various wars and, and he he's surrounded by this halo of light and he's presenting the constitution to us as if he has brought it down from mount sinai or in this case capitol hill <laughs> yeah and this is available in show notes by the way so if you want to see a, an image of this you could certainly do so and it's i yeah i saw this and thought well this is this is kind of i mean it's bizarre i mean it looks like Jesus' tunic, he has like the tree, the white tree of Gondor from Lord of the Rings. It's there's some kind of bizarre details to it. But I saw this and I thought, well, I feel pretty uncomfortable with this as sort of a theocratic image. But this is this kind of illustrates the narrative that we often have in conservative evangelicalism, where uh, America is a country that is ordained by God for a specific role in the world. Okay just in the sharp end of the spear of American exceptionalism presented visually here. And then uh, McNaughton has another work that uh, is has a young couple planting this little sapling in front of the White House, and they're surrounded by another one of these uh, sort of cloud of witnesses from American history. And it features Donald Trump's heel crushing the head of a serpent in this bizarre mixture of like the Gadsden flag and uh, the prediction from Genesis about the serpent and how <laughs> humans are going to interact with them. So this is this is kind of what I've grown up with. There was a there's a woman 
uh, at my parents' church, I remember my mom passed this on to me. She said, she used to teach history in public schools, and she said, I believe the Constitution is an inspired, a document inspired by God. Oh, wow. And this whole time I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable <laughs> with this, but I think these, these are sort of interesting anecdotes and documents for what a certain segment of Christendom believes. And I want to kind of start with that and then go back in time and kind of build a case for maybe why we view the American Revolution as we do. Before that, can you tell us where these paintings are displayed or what year they were painted? Or are they obviously they are contemporary if Donald Trump is right, in the second right. one? These are, as far as I know, these are only available on McNaughton's website. Okay. Uh, he has, and I encourage you to look, look at them because they're fascinating artifacts of sort of a certain theological brand. Uh, and and there there are others too. There's uh, Obama like burning the Bill of Rights or something. <laughs> so it's fascinating. It's as not he's subtle to do. <laughs> as he as he you know he'd get up in the morning and do that. Um, yeah, none of it's subtle. Uh, it's it's not what we would call nuanced, layered, and you know rich, soaking with metaphor sort of visual art. <laughs> but I kind of have this. I also have this soft spot in my heart for kitsch. So this definitely falls in that. <laughs> One of the one of the before we go back, one of the things that I keep trying to convince Cole of is that this exists within our within the zeitgeist. So it, it, I think he believes that this is an outlier point of view. Do you think that he's accurate that this is an outlier point of view within Christian evangelicalism, or is that um, something that, in other words, do these paintings represent something that you think is um, fringy? Yeah, fringy is a good word. I. I am not in a position to say, really, because I teach at a university that consists of political liberals or really nuanced thinking conservatives, and I just don't have my finger on the pulse of what, you know, a, an evangelical church in Kansas City or in the midst of Dallas would sort of believe writ large about this. I do know that, like Christianity today, as perhaps a bellwether of evangelical kind of sophisticated, I would say, rather nuanced, somewhat sophisticated evangelical thought, would not buy into visual art like this. So I would say kind of the upper strata of evangelicalism would not be a fan of this kind of mixing of church and state. I, but I can't speak, you know, I, I haven't done any polls or anything like that. So there you go. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I want to go, go back in time, I want to get in our time machine and kind of go back uh, to sort of founding father times, even before that, to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And because uh, I've been thinking about this since, since I taught about the pilgrims uh, in my American art history class, and this idea that, and I should say the Puritans, not the pilgrims, the Puritans were uh, those religious uh, refugees, if you will, who did not want to separate from the Church of England. They wanted to remain within the Church of England and reform it from the inside. And they believed, as they were coming to the New World, they were not simply uh, another utopian experiment. They believed they were the beginning of something new. Uh, and in a sense, this idea of American exceptionalism that we talk about, we can trace back to the Puritans, who believed that they were going to be setting a sitting, setting up a city on a hill. There's a famous sermon that was preached on the boat as the Puritans are coming over uh, by John Winthrop, uh, and he said, 
We shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. We must delight in each other, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our community as members of that same body, so that, and listen to this, so that men may say of succeeding plantations or succeeding colonies, the Lord make it like that of New England. Wow. Okay? So there's this idea that they're not just another reform movement. They are going to be doing something that has never been seen before in the Western world. This, the start of something completely new and, and exceptional and mandated by God himself. And this trend continues just in naming. I mean, we think about New Bedford, New Salem, these sort of names in New England itself, right? This isn't just England 2.0 or Bedford 2.0. This is new heavens and new earth, okay? There's a sense that there is something deeply and richly theological going on in these things they're establishing. Um, and this, this continues. You, as uh, Americans move west, they're viewing the wilderness as Eden. It's not, it's not like Europe, which has been corrupted by war uh, and later industrialization. It is untamed virgin wilderness, much like the Garden of Eden, there for us to, to subjugate or to utilize, depending on your point of view. And um, this is there's no other place on earth that sort of provides these resources as sort of a divine gift to us. You move on, and I, I, tr I track this in American art, which is why I'm thinking about it. Edward Hicks, this uh, Quaker painter who painted a series of paintings called The Peaceable Kingdom, which uses biblical imagery of a child leading, <laughs> you know, the lion and the lamb are laying down together, and there's this <laughs> child leading them. And in the background, William Penn is signing a treaty with the Indians, and 90% of them. So there's this idea that uh, in America we are fulfilling and sometimes apocalyptic expectations of new heaven and new earth as early as the 17 and 1800s, which is fascinating. Okay, what does all this mean? It means there's a sense of inevitability, right, that is kind of built into some of the narratives in American history that God gave us this land and it is, it is destiny that American un history unfold as it does, including us throwing off the shackles of the British, right? Including fighting this apocalyptic war over slavery, and God is sort of drawing us through this narrative that he ordained from the very beginning. And this goes back to the Puritans. So that when I hear the woman, well, I didn't hear it, when my mom tells me this woman said the Constitution was, is a divinely inspired document, that is just the next sort of link in this long narrative that goes back to John Winthrop on the Arabella crossing the Atlantic Ocean. It sounds like you're describing a kind of ascent to a new creation that that people have discovered rediscovered natural law, the purest form of our existence. I mean, this is not too distantly removed from the idea of the noble savage. Um, so it sounds like that there is a lot going on theologically that it could derive from biblical or the theological concepts like new creation or the the restoration of crea creation, right. Romans 8 type thing. Right. Yes. And if we, are we ready to jump into the revolution yet? Because you have some of this, maybe not. Well, no, I, 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 I am ready. But the part of the reason why I think this is so compelling is, uh, you know, on the picture that you showed us of, of Donald Trump, uh, the painting by McNaughton of Donald Trump, uh, there's a boy who's planted a tree in that in the pavement, and the mm -hmm. mother is handing him a pitcher of water to. This is kind of this new creation, right? right? That's right. Um, 
that uh, there's something natural, the natural goodness or the natural law is being manifest, which the reason I think that that's interesting is because that is a part of the argument, the theological argument during the revolution, sure. that this is how this is this is how we justify revolution is because of natural law. Yes. And that just the idea of self, it's self-evident that everybody's created equal, right? We didn't have to have that written in stone on Mount Sinai. It's obvious to anybody who's lived and experienced life. It's it's obvious by reason, and the reason is and 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 the reason is nature. That's right. Yeah. And if we want to talk about literal, this is maybe not really a rabbit trail, a parenthetical comment. This comes out in American landscape painting as well. This idea that and maybe and it's wrapped up in transcendentalism in New England as well. This idea that nature is a book of God to be read. I know that when we're talking about natural law, that didn't necessarily mean flowers and birds and trees and stuff like that. We're talking about just existence. But if we do want to talk about nature, that idea is present there too, that we can look at a painting like Thomas Cole's The Oxbow, and Cole is describing, uh, or just before us visually, this contrast between God's raw, untamed nature, which is powerful and hard to subjugate on the left-hand side of the painting, and a bucolic sort of subjugated landscape on the right and the tension between those two and the idea that nature is rife with lessons about the creator and you can look at nature and learn stuff about god just by keeping your eyes open is a big one uh, both in american art and literature okay so take us to the revolution then okay i don't think we should have done it i think revel the american Revo a christian living in the time of uh this particular event would not have been justified based on uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, in participating in armed rebellion against a government, okay? Uh, I would contend that things like, well, long before the revolution itself, but the navigate, I think it was called the Navigation Laws, the Navigation Act, the Stamp Act, which these are imposing burdens of sorts, but the taxation on the colonists isn't that severe. Their protest, one of their most direct protests was, we don't have a voice in Parliament. We don't have a say. We're being taxed. Even this small amount, we don't have a say in Parliament about this taxation. And that's what kind of really drives them to some of the acts that they do. I just feel like the threshold, what I would consider the threshold for any... Well, let me back up here for a second. I feel like with these texts that you guys have talked about on your podcast already about submitting to authority, we have other texts that can be brought into dialogue with those, okay? I think about uh, Acts 4, right, where Peter and, and John are told not to preach anymore. Uh, and they're like, you know, decide for yourself who we should obey, uh, you know, God or you. Uh, there are... Um, there, there are various uh, kind of arguments in Scripture that you could bring into uh, kind of dialogue with these sort of touchstone passages for not rebelling against government that might justify, you know, I think I could take up arms to defend somebody else, for example. Uh, but in terms of justification for throwing off the shackles of a government so that you can have increased parliamentary representation, I don't see it in Scripture. I don't see any other texts you could bring to the table and scripturally justify it. Well, let's be clear about what actually happened, 
Because I don't think they got in boats and went to England and started shooting people, right? Correct. There's so, the argument this is self-defense, not an That's offensive. right. Because, uh, and as, as Daniel Hannon points out in his book, Inventing Freedom, Paul Revere did not actually say the British are coming. Because what they would have said is, look, people are coming, our, na- our cousins from across the Atlantic are coming to attack us because they were all British. That's right. They were all British colonists versus British mainland. So they said, we're not doing this anymore. And then King George sent his troops to enforce the law with force. So you, it, it is possible to say that they were defending each other, themselves, their, what, their experiment, which I think this is the point of contention, is what they were defending. But I don't think that they were on offense. And I no, wonder if that I'm makes not, a difference. I'm not arguing for that. I, th- I don't know, though. I don't know, because does offense consist of who literally throws the first stone? Because we think about the Boston Massacre, right? This is not just the Redcoats saying, man, I'm kind of bored. I'm going to shoot me some colonists, right? <laughs> these are colonists, like, tossing rocks and bottles and stuff at these probably kind of scared, I don't know if they're scared teenagers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who, are on, who are on this colonial uh, sort of guard duty. But we have instances of the colonists kind of acting aggressively in, okay. in, in, in some contexts. I mean, there's the famous thing, don't, what is it? Stand your ground don't fire, unless fired upon it. They mean to have a war, let it begin here, right? That seems a little... That particular skirmish seems more self-defensey, but I don't. I don't think we need to sort of paint this as the aggressive British occupiers coming over and setting up gulags or something like that. Well, and and in fact, in um, in Samuel West's sermon, uh, justifying or on, on election day, where he's where he's saying this is our responsibility to rebel against against England. It's the tyranny has already existed, and the tyranny exists in the form of taxes. So, right. So this is not the claim that my children's lives are uh, literally uh, facing a sword. The sword, the tyranny, the horror is taxation without representation. Yes, but as a libertarian, let me just point out what happens if you don't pay your taxes. You get the sword and the, you get the boot. So I, I am not ready to concede that taxation is just light and fluffy, and it's very different from the sword because it's the sword's right behind it. Yes, <laughs> which makes it okay. Which makes and it taxes are property. It's my property. So right. we're talking, we are talking about the early manifestations in the new colonies of property rights, which is what they were, I think, trying to build the experiment on. And taxes is not just money; it is my earnings and subject to what the tax collectors um, will do to force it from me. Yes, and I am sympathetic to this libertarian idea that taxation is a form of coercion, yeah. right? And and a form of kind of taking things from me and f- an act of force. But we have this idea, right? Jesus says, hey, if this occupying force, this representative of an occupying force uh, says, carry my stuff for a mile, you have to do it another mile. Like, And if somebody wants your cloak, give them I'm butchering scripture. No, that's a. No, I think that's a better argument a than the one we were argument. discussing. Yes. Um, so I, while I would I would agree with you in in terms of acting out politically right now, I have sort of a libertarian inflected sort of perspective myself. Yeah, I don't I don't think that brings us to the point where we can scripturally justify overthrowing the British government. And I, one of the things I would add is one of the nuances that that seems to have been present in colonial sermons to to help. 
blunt the harder edges, shall we say, of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 is this idea of, yes, God put governments in place. We respect that authority. But if there is tyranny within those governments, if there's a tyrannical element, uh, then that must be opposed because God wants civil government. I just don't buy that nuance. Yeah, I, there's a there's a difference here between whether whether the revolution was justified um, politically and whether it's justified in terms of the Christian response to it. Those may be two, those might be two very different things. Oh, I think so. Right. Except except for the fact that I would. This might be really naive, so get ready. I think every single colonist would have described him or herself a Christian. I don't think that's naive. I just think that that should be carefully evaluated <laughs> for the very reasons that you brought up in the, in the, exa- in the two examples of the paintings. I, I think if we fail to evaluate that, we automatically assume that the Constitution does have – that it is inspired, that it has some theological value, that um, our president is the person crushing the head of the serpent as opposed to Christ. Oh, my goodness. How do you, how do you say this is okay for a politician, right? Now, let me – can I share, yeah. just while we're talking about that painting, I was, I was digging through McNaughton's website, and he has commentary on his paintings, and he said this. He's a big Trump fan. Big. Uh, and he says, I want a president – and this is, this is sort of an annotation attached to that painting. I want a president that will crush the enemies of liberty, justice, and American prosperity. They may have the power to bruise his heel, but he will have the power to crush their head. And it seems that when he says he, he's talking about President Trump here. And I'm, I, that's, that's the point at which his work really crosses over, from my perspective, into some uh, – I, I don't want to say – I'm tempted to say idolatry right. of the state. <laughs> Or, or it's not a t- it's not I, that's, that's I'm, what's I'm, happening. But I'm I'm trying to give this guy because this guy the benefit of the doubt for having not maybe f- followed the implications of this stuff all the way through. Uh, but I think it's a really dangerous direction, and there's this. Con- I would love for somebody to preach a sermon about. Uh, kind of putting together the Gadsden flag, which is the serpent that says "Don't tread on me," right with allied with the imagery of Jesus being the one uh, who is going to crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent, you know, bruises the heel of humanity. Dan, I, I think it is imperative, regardless of whether McNaughton has thought through um, those connections or not, um, I don't mind being generous to McNaughton, but I do think that there are consequences for failing to recognize the ways in which we have conflated patriotism, nationalism, and Christianity. And I'll be, I'll be really brutally honest, my antennae are way up, and I see this from a long way off, maybe far before it's actually a problem. So, for example, um, at the church where I worship, they have had in the past flags within the sanctuary uh, in the we don't call them sanctuary we call it the auditorium but there are flags in there of of different countries and of course the United States flag is the biggest one that makes me very nervous I'm not sure that that's fair 
right? There comes a point where you need to say, self, sit down and shut up. It's not that big a deal. But so I'll confess that my antenna are up early, like a flag in the sanctuary. But it's not too many steps. And I'm making a slippery slope argument, but there are not too many steps from there to it's not Jesus who crushes the head of the serpent, but a politician. And that slope is so fast. And it has been so fast in our history that I just want to yell about it. Clearly. (laughs) And it happens. I mean, we see this increasingly happening on the religious left as well as the religious right as well. Amen, brother. Okay. And any sort of messianic – I go back to the Obama hope poster, right? The Shepherd Fairy, he's the graphic designer who did this Obama hope poster. And it's utterly – it's a secular messianic poster, okay, akin to – I mean, just stylistically akin to socialist, realist sort of imagery from the USSR. And I'm not saying Obama was a communist or anything like that. I'm just saying there's this idea of messianic political figure uh, kind of embedded in the visual ether of uh, America in in many examples. That's entirely fair. And I think um, Cole will agree with you uh, even more than I do. Um, that the left is equally guilty, and there are times I think where we, uh, where the left is guilty in kind of Christianizing socialism. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. Where yeah, you hear a lot of talk about. You hear a lot of talk that I think is highly skilled in talking about it in religious terms without ever citing a religious document. You know, right. like Obama got really close. I mentioned it in an earlier podcast when he was talking about the. ACA and said something about being your brother's keeper. That's as close as you get to citing Christian scripture as a warrant for socialism, but it's there. Yeah. The DNA is there from the from holy scripture. I would be going back to our original topic. I'd be if we, yeah, we sure. want to do that. I don't. Uh I I'd be really interested in hearing either of you, like your best argument from Scripture of why it would be okay for a Christian in the 1770s to jump in and join in armed conflict. I mean, we haven't talked about just sort of peaceful civil disobedience. That'd be an interesting thing to discuss. Uh, But can you guys think of any good scriptural reasons why that that would justify this? Well, let me give you Samuel West's argument, because Samuel West actually um, wrestled with this, and that's a contemporary preacher who um, I, uh, I was telling you guys earlier, this is a 16,500-word-long uh, sermon. Can you imagine sitting in a sermon with that many words? It's 27 pages, single-spaced. <laughs> We're soft and weak. Yeah. <laughs> but he makes an argument that... Um, starts with the idea that reason and natural law is written on the hearts of men. And so we could we could look at we can look at scripture and understand it through logic and natural law. So in order to and and he does some what I think are kind of some interesting gymnastics when it comes to dealing with for example when he deals with Titus and Titus uh, 3 where uh, Paul says, I want you to live in peace. And you see this also in Timothy. You see it in in First Peter, 
uh, when Peter tells the church to live in peace. Paul writes this in uh, Romans 13, but that this is really contextualized. This should be understood through the lens of general principles and natural law, not within the historical context that Paul finds himself. So you shouldn't understand Paul saying this within the Sitzim Leben of Nero's rule, right? You should understand it as a timeless truth, a proverbial truth, rather than something that is uh, in any way contextualized by Paul's current situation. What's fascinating about this approach is that it provides um, the audience a way of understanding rebellion against tyranny as an expression of natural law and that when you um, when you are reacting because of the law that is written on our hearts, it is therefore not only justified, it becomes an imperative. Mm-hmm. He reaches a point where he says, it would be highly criminal not to feel due resentment against such tyrannical monsters. We must beat our plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears and learn the art of self-defense against our enemies. And you know why? Because they taxed us without representation. So, Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So this is the argument. The argument is that it's failed if it feels like you are victims of tyranny. It's because you are victims of tyranny because the government has failed to live up to its uh, responsibilities under God's natural law. Right. That is, and he's basically saying, you know it in your bones right. when you are being oppressed by the government, and it is your Christian duty to fight. I don't know tyranny. if you use the word duty, but there's it some, would be highly versus- criminal not to feel due resentment against such such tyrannical monsters. Wow. Yeah. So he's putting religious warrants behind fighting tyranny. Right. Yeah. Because you got taxed. And seemingly making it an imperative for the Christian. Yes. Which is interesting. Which is taking it to the next level. He's it's not a just... call to arms. It's not permission. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not merely to say, you know, this is, um, therefore, it's okay to kill somebody. We must beat our plowshares into swords. Yeah. It's, a, it's not merely justification. It's a call to arms. So I'd be curious... Cole, where you are on, you have provided some counterarguments here. What do you think? What do you think? Well, I think the question you asked a moment ago about could we provide any arguments for taking up arms, I think that has got to be question number two. I think question number one is, does New Testament Christianity require us to be pacifists? And if that answer is yes, then question number two is elided. And so I I will defer for a moment to ask Scott to opine about question number one. Does it require us to be pacifists before I will then answer? Does the New Testament require us to be pacifists? Does New Testament Christianity require us to be pacifists, would you say? I want to be very careful before I answer. Okay. That I do not hold my brothers and sisters responsible for my conclusion mm-hmm. because um, I could be wrong. And so I, I mean that very literally. I have family who um, serve in the military and they do so, I believe, with honest and, and godly intent. And so I don't believe it's fair for me to, I don't have the right or the wisdom to say for my brother what you can or can't do. But no, 
the answer for me is um, I don't believe that it is um, permissible for a Christian to take up arms. Um, can can how about a police officer? Can a Christian be a police officer and take up arms and use violent restraining violence in defense of citizens? Do you think? So there's a the pacifist dilemma is um, you know Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox Evangelicalism, our own religious tradition of rest of the Restoration movement was pacifist up until World War II, and then you're confronted with a kind of evil where those answers don't work anymore. And I I want to be sensitive to that sure. as well, right? That a liberal academic like me can sit in my office and have hot sports opinions about what people ought to do. Um, but it may not, it may not be manifest in real world experience, but um, no, uh, the, the idea of civil disobedience does make sense um, in, from a new Testament point of view. I, you know, I think of, Peter lashing out against uh, the temple guard when Jesus is taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there is ever a time for someone to feel justified uh, for taking up arms, that one seems pretty overt. That is a perfect time to take up defense against God's own son. And it's not that Jesus turns to Peter and says, uh, no, 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 I've got to go to the cross. If that's what he wanted to say, he could have said that. But he says to Peter, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. That's a different response. And um, I, want to, I want to understand that response completely. Uh, there is the pacifist dilemma that if, uh, you know, if Cole is punching you to within an inch of your life, I can't stand by the side and say, well, sorry, Dan, I'm a pacifist, so I'm permitting violence to occur, that's not pacifism. That's just laziness um, or passive participation. So there is a dilemma that I have to be very, very sensitive to. But um, maybe the nuanced view is wherever it's possible, live in peace with, uh, with those around you. And that it may be more possible than we give ourselves. Also, the, there's the other response, which is Bonhoeffer's. Right. Right, which you mentioned, I think a podcast. Which is or so two hardcore. Ago. It is yeah. super hardcore. I mean, That's right. This may send me to hell, but but I'm going to defend super, anyway. Right? Do you think Bonhoeffer's going to hell, Scott? Have y'all <laughs> actually? Bonhoeffer yours? doesn't think he's going to hell. Oh, okay. Um, no, is, I don't think. Is he, he just either. using using it as kind of a hyperbolic statement? Right. Okay. But he understands costly grace. So yeah. there's a uh, that he does not uh, um, rely upon costly grace becomes. Uh, in and of itself, part of the vehicle, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a delicate, and he's so often misunderstood as a result because some would say, well, Bonhoeffer would participate. Well, yeah, Bonhoeffer would participate, and he would also imagine that this is damnable. Hey, so what did you say to my police officer thing? Did you say no? Christians can't be police officers. I forgot what you said. Uh, I would say I could not be. A yeah, police okay. Officer. I okay. think he was saying he could not be. I- can I go back to the argument, the classic argument of when Jesus disarms Peter, he disarms all his followers sure. in the garden? Is Who said, is Yoder? Is Yoder yes. kind of the, the yeah. guy behind that? What if, nah, what ifs are always a bad idea, but like, what if there is like a Roman soldier like about to rape a woman or about to beat a little boy there in the garden and Peter pulls out a sword or say a cudgel and right. and... 
I, I just wonder if Jesus' words were for Peter at that time rather than for all the followers, all his followers who, who would come later. What do you think about that? I think that's fair, uh, partly because um, you see Jesus uh, himself when he enters into the temple and he sees the, the money changing. He's really, really infuriated by that. And you could see that um, th- there are some who depict that scene as merely Jesus turning over tables, but he drives out the men and women and he drives out the cattle and the livestock. He drives everyone out. With a whip. With a whip. He's hardcore. So I would, from my point of view, I would say Jesus has the right to that righteous indignation in ways that I don't. Interesting. Right? He's yeah. the son of God. If he wants to whoop up on somebody, I think that's fair in part because we understand that there are uh, – we, we see Jesus act in, in ways that are defensive. Yes, because let's be clear. If the people would not have run away – when he was whipping the whip, it stands to reason that the whip would have whipped them. <laughs> right. Right? Right. I mean, he drove them out because they ran away. I just want to stop one step shy of saying, therefore, I can do it. I know. We get right. it. Okay. I, yeah. yeah. And to answer your question about what he said to Peter, Scott reminded us that he doesn't just say, Peter, stop. He actually utters an axiom. Mm-hmm. Right. That mm-hmm. it tends to be instructive to why he's telling Peter to not do it. Yeah. How do you how do you utter a proverb like this? Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. That doesn't seem situational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a. I think that's the best argument. And I think all these are much better arguments than Romans thirteen. Now we talked about Romans thirteen sure. earlier, but I I what you are now talking about the way Jesus behaved and spoke. And the way he responded to his disciples uh, who were with him and said, hey, he had every opportunity to say, you guys need to start rebelling against the Roman guard. That's And he didn't. That's a much better argument to me than Paul's Romans 13. Could I also say, though, that Jesus never utters that axiom to the centurions that he encounters? And, right, he doesn't say... Right, he doesn't turn to the centurion and say, now that... right." Nor does, nor does God command Peter to tell Cornelius, by the way, after we baptize you in your household, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. I'll throw that out there. Entirely fair. And by the way, I'm probably, in case you're wondering, for our listeners out there, I'm probably like 60 or 70% pacifist. I don't yeah. know if that's possible, but we, Cole and I have talked about this. Like, If I were drafted, if that were reinstated, I'd be like, I don't want to kill people. I'll be a medic. Um, or a chaplain. Or a chaplain, except I would run into the sticky situation of being a chaplain of the soldiers coming to me and saying, hey, is the war we're fighting? Is this cool? And I'd be like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That wouldn't be, I, would, I would be a terrible chaplain. But I'd, I'd, I don't know. What about for you, Cole? Are, it, do you believe that the New Testament gives permission to act in violent ways? Violent ways. I try to. This is where I really try to think of myself – my citizenship as separate from my Christianity, all right? And that's hard on this topic, and I appreciate that you've said, I, meaning you, Scott, could not be a police mm-hmm. officer or a soldier. Well, so I try to think, what would I do um, if I were in my front yard and people were coming to take my house, take my property, or to even harm my loved ones? And I don't think I could 
Boy, this is going to be really bad answer. You guys are going to just bad. Just take I a crack at it. I don't think I would uh, take a gun and try to shoot to kill people, but okay. I do think I would shoot a lot of kneecaps. Okay. Right? Because that's... Non-lethal force. Non-lethal force. That's right. Now, that's still a gra- that is still force, and it's still violence. But you just chop people's ears off. It's a... Yeah. <laughs> oh. would, well, would pacifists be cool with rubber bullets or tear gas? It's still violence, I think. Ah, but it's not like you're not permanently it's hurting not lethal violence. With tear gas. It's not lethal. Yeah. I think I would do a lot to defend in a non-lethal way, and I think I would feel fine with a state that permitted people the power to protect minimally their property with non-lethal force. Um, I don't think if I were drafted that I could go fight in a war. I think I would also have to be a medic or a chaplain. What per- really? What yeah. percentage pacifist are you, if you had to put a number uh, on Oh, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I just don't think I could, for the cause of the nation, go and kill other people. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could do it. Can I bring us back to war? Sure. Brought sure, a- before, but I want to give you my percentage. Yes, uh, yes. It's uh-huh. 100%. Now, that does not mean that I would – I don't believe I would ever act in violent ways. I would just never justify it. Uh, That's where right. I would be. I would say, this is terrible that I did this thing. I would, I would not justify it by self-defense or by – I would require I would require the mercy of God, but I would require that, the mercy of God. We call that Bonhoeffering it. <laughs> well, Bonhoeffer. Dan and I have another friend who is an avowed pacifist, and I was several years ago in the room when Dan pressed her and said, "What would you do if people were coming into your house and harming your children?" Mm-hmm. And she just smiled dimly and said, "I would protect them and violate my conscience." Right. I think that is a smart answer. From my point of view, that is a smart answer. It says, I, I live in a fallen, terrible, violent world, and there are times where I will have to violate my conscience in order to, to survive or to make sure my children survive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would probably end up doing kind of similar things. Someone like me might say, but I don't think God holds me accountable for it. And you would say, I would take... I would require God's grace. I would invoke God's grace and take the consequences. Right. But I'm comfortable requiring God's grace. Yeah. I'm more comfortable um, receiving God's grace trying to love my neighbor and failing than I am justifying um, hating my neighbor and acting in violent ways. I would would rather say um, I have this standard of agape that's supposed to play out in every scenario than to say, well... But I just decided it would be justified. Mm-hmm. That scares the snot out of me. Yeah. So you, Scott, would probably, unlike Dan and I would, you would probably neither be a medic nor a chaplain and just go to prison. You would let them put Correct. you in prison. Okay. That would align with your conscience better than serving the war effort as a chaplain or medic. Right. What about okay. bandaging bullet wounds and stuff like that? That or what about paying good. my taxes during wartime? Oh, 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 oh. right. Why are throw. we not? Why are we not all in prison? Right. Right. So I am a significant enough pacifist that I feel I feel a problem participating, paying my taxes. I mean, I do it, but 
Are you violating your conscience? I'm violating every my April? conscience. Wow. Not yeah. But I mean, you're violating your conscience should, too, yes, right? If, right. It, if it's funding something that but something else. Does Jesus's right. injunction to, you know, pay your taxes? I mean, does that? Rome is doing all kinds of occupying right. things. That's a good point. And I've read Christian scholars who have said that we should not feel responsible for what the state does with our money once they take it from us, that we cannot be held accountable for that because of the conversation Jesus had with his apostles, give unto Caesar and be done. You know, I think that's an interesting point. I have questions that may be the subjects of other podcasts. Okay. So we can consider this as discussion fodder now or things you guys might want to tackle later. Okay. But it's relevant. All right. To kind of – do y'all think – I'd be interested in probing the limits. Somebody like me who would say, "Ah, I can't buy a Christian participating in the American Revolution, but I kind of can the American Civil War, which is being fought on behalf – of an oppressed group, at least partially, right? I at know. least partially. And for some of some people who are listening will better understand that war as the war of northern aggression. Of course. Right. One third of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, so I'd, I'd, I'd be curious about that if – if I'm, I'm curious about the – the justification of defending other people, which makes police work more palatable to me than being, say, a soldier in an occupying army in the Middle East engaged in nation building. I know what Scott will say right now. Can I answer for you? Mm -hmm. Scott would say the Christian's duty when his fellow citizens own slaves is to go and persuade his fellow citizens with the gospel of Jesus Christ that they are behaving inappropriately, not to take up arms against them. Not to take up arms. Is that right? We should win the argument. We should win the argument persuasively. Mm-hmm. Right. We should engage in the public square in persuasive ways that call us to, as Abraham Lincoln called it, the better angels of our nature. That's our responsibility. And that's the tool that we have. And we have the ultimate subversive power is agape. Mm. And there are no shortcuts for agape. I would also want to make sure that we're not understating something that's important to me. I think there's a difference between um, acting in ways that are self-justifying and acting in ways that violate one's conscience. I, I think one of the, one of the things that I feel like is missing from the from Christian discourse in our time is the possibility that we might do things and do them in the wrong way, and that's something that we can be forgiven for. That conversation to me is much more compelling than the one where we decide I'm on the right side of this discussion and so therefore I am justified. Or the right side of history. Right. Whenever I see in the Gospels someone wanting to justify themselves, that ends up not working out for them. (laughs) So you have the man that comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus gives him an answer and he says, the text says, wanting to justify himself. Things get terrible from there. And 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 I think that um, as long as we're trying to parse out what is right and wrong, we're failing already because we're parsing out the difference between 
what is permissible and what is not permissible, when we're justified and when we're not justified, I think it's better to have conversations where we say, what is the most loving thing to do? And recognize that as we're trying to do what is most loving, it is also not necessarily easy to understand and requires discourse and the dialogic. Okay. I. I think that we would be remiss if we did not take this conversation one other very important place, and that is the Israelites of the Old Testament. So if you will remember, the Midianite women led the Israelites astray, and this is in Numbers chapter 31 and so forth, um, and God, God came to Moses and said, here's what you're going to do. Take all these people from the tribes and go wipe them out. And what they do? They killed all the men and brought back all the women and children. And Moses said, this is not what I said. You have to kill all the male children and all the women who have slept with a man. And then the rest of the girls and the animals, you have to divide them up as booty. So. Are we talking about the Old Testament having justified holy war or just war or what? What are we looking at here and does it does it come into this conversation? Dan. Oh, sheesh. I yeah, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Um I know this is uh I think who was it? Uh Andy Stanley was just accused of soft Marcionism. Uh, for saying we need to unhitch the Old Testament. Uh, and these are his words, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and sort of unhitch the Old Testament from our ethics. I don't agree with that. I think it's bad news. Uh, I would not go there, but I would kind of plead a sort of mystery and unknowing from my perspective on the moral mechanics of warfare in the Old Testament. I just really, God can kind of do what He wants. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't really have a, I don't really have a good answer for that. At least one that that would be thoughtful. Okay. That would be illuminating. Well, I think there are two um, that you can that you can work with. Um, one is to understand. Um, there's a difference between. This is what we were talking about with Jesus driving the, uh, driving everyone out of the temple, the money changers out of the temple. Dan, you you hit on something. I think you can say God can do what He wants to do. Are you a Calvinist? Are you a closet Calvinist? No, I'm not. I'm not going to make this argument. I'm saying you could. Make oh, okay, argument. okay. One could. One, One could. could. And I think <laughs> it would be a could. yeah, there would be Calvinist argument that God does what God decides is best, and um, uh, and that because Moses has an open channel with God, he understands explicitly what God wants. That's different from. Uh, anybody else saying, <laughs> "Hey, Scott, just so you, just so you know, God told me we need to rob your neighbor's house." I'm not sure I'd be as comfortable with that one because I just don't trust my my friends to know what God wants them to do. So that would be one one interpretation. I think the other that you have to wrestle with is the possibility that it is etiological. What does that mean? Help me out. That, um, that you know, another view of um, especially early uh, Israel history is that things happened and then we refer to them as God's will. 
that because these things happened, it was God's will does not mean that it was prescriptively foretold to be God's will, but that when it happens, that when we see it in in retrospect, we say, well, this is what God wanted, or things didn't go well, so obviously you didn't do what God wanted, right? And so, by we, you mean the chroniclers who are writing right, down that text. Right. This is, this is how a theocracy thinks through these things. If God prospers a people who obey him and things aren't working out, there must be some reason. We must have failed in some way and had to self-correct. Yes, but there's a third option, too, that's very close to that one, which is there could be some, and I'm using quotes here, slippage between what God told Israel to do and what Israel said God told Israel to do. Right. That would be the ultimate liberal interpretation. The nation-building, and I wonder if that would necessarily negate the idea of inspiration if we came to that conclusion. If we decided uh, that we didn't believe at all that God wanted Israel to go and kill all those Midianites, but that... Israel said God wanted him to, does that mean that we no longer have an inspired view of the Bible? You would, end up, you would need to redefine what inspiration is. Right. You could still have right, it. Right, right, Okay. You need to just go to Union Theological Seminary and just become a mainliner, Cole. <laughs> Sounds like at it. At this point. Sounds I think I'm going to grow like a beard it. and become a Calvinist on this one. Are you really? I, I think I'm going to smoke my pipe and drink my craft beer. And if those are, if those are kind of my options, I'm going to say, I don't know, it sounds bad. God can do what he wants, but I don't understand it. Is that a Calvin? Is that the Calvinist? Oh, I'm not a reduction? Calvinist. I don't know, but I'm, 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 on, I'm, on this particular issue, I mean that that's about all I can say. Not having like really, yeah, it's on it. it is also very mysterious to me. And um, having listened to your options, I still am not sure which one. Mm-hmm. I I tend to think that the way Jesus discusses violence in the New Testament causes me to believe that there was some slippage in the Old Testament regarding what they wrote down that God told them and what that's where I tend to lean where I end up I'm not sure yeah fellas I sure did enjoy this conversation (laughs) me too I I see that we didn't end up at any particular place but that's kind of the nature of these well yeah I I think if we end up someplace that's a dangerous spot to be (laughs) I thought we I thought we ended up with don't be a Tory or be a Tory don't don't join the revolution I thought we ended up with that I oh, think actually, we probably wouldn't have. We three probably. We three wouldn't have. We would have been. Well, would you have loyalists. been? Would totally you have been, been loyalists. But there was also an, there were also other options. There was the Quaker option. Yeah. The Quakers. The Benedict option. We yep. need a whole podcast on the Quakers. <laughs> the Benedict option. Both Philadelphia kidding. options. We could have gotten in boats and gone back to England. Hey, you know what? Can I tell you one little something interesting? Sure. Some of the most anthologized painters of like George Washington and kind of the revolutionary era spent the American Revolution in England. Really? Really? Yes. Gilbert Stuart, who painted this iconic portrait of George Washington called the Athenaeum portrait that we use on our dollar bill, Hmm. spent the war years in England because that's where you got artistic training. And B, it's because during the war, nobody wanted to pay for portraits. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And there was no market for portrait painters in the colonies during the war. So, I mean, people who are painting is really patriarchal. This guy, at least, when he's painting this imagery, he's not even in the States. I think if I were an Englishman in England and war broke out in the colonies, I would probably stay in England, too. That seems like a smart thing to do. Yeah. Right? He would have been a British citizen. 
Interesting. And then he comes back and makes like tons of money to support his drinking habit by selling <laughs> copies of the George Washington portrait. Just cranking really? them out like a factory. Yeah. That's the solution. <laughs> drinking? What?